I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 5th, 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about Kevin Durant's decision to leave Oklahoma City for the Golden State Warriors and all the money that's been splashing around in the opening weekend of NBA free agency. Bryn Law of Sky Sports will join us to discuss Wales's shocking run to the semifinals of the European Championships and the secret to the Dragons' success. And we'll speak with The Washington Post's Sally Jenkins about Pat Summit, the legendary basketball coach who died last week at the age of 64. Stefan Fatsis is off this week, but joining me, as always, from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hello, Mike. When Stefan's off, I get bumped up in the order. I love, I I love it. Where's the Welsh flag in your flag <laughs> rankings? Okay, so technically, people who are vexillologists would say it's not great because it's impossible for a fourth grader to replicate that dragon. And yet it is nice within the panoply of flags, especially the flags that make up the British flag, which are just all um, cross hatches and saltaires in the the, uh, Scottish flag. It's nice to have a little design. So I like it. I quite like it. (laughs) 
And filling in for Stefan this week, I do not know about her vexillological. I do not. <laughs> I do not know about her vexillological cred, but my uh, aptitude there. <laughs> no, but we know she's an investigative and enterprise reporter for the sports section of the Boston Globe. Before that, she was the Globe's Boston Celtics beat writer. It is Shira Springer. Hello, Shira. Hello. Please don't quiz me on flag designs. Well, we know that you spend quality time with Kendrick Perkins who yes. later played in OKC with Kevin Durant. So basically, you were one of the first to know. You had an inkling that this was going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, before we get to that, in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the Olympic trials in various sports. Uh, Katie Ledecky and Michael Phelps swam their way to Rio in an extremely figurative sense. And Randall Cunningham's daughter, Vashti Cunningham, also leaped her way to Rio again figuratively. And they will all enjoy the safety and comfort of Rio again, figuratively. (laughs) (laughs) You can sign up for Slate Plus to get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts. And if you do sign up, you will get a free two-week trial. Get it at slate.com slash hangupplus. On May 30th, five of ESPN's smartest basketball writers, these were the smart ones, your Kevin Arnovitz's, your Amin El Hassan's, <laughs> your Kevin Pelton's, they were asked what they thought Kevin Durant would do this offseason. All five predicted he would sign a short-term deal to go back to the Thunder and then become a free agent again next offseason when the salary cap jumps and he could get paid to the maximum extent that the NBA's collective bargaining agreement allows. So let there not be any revisionism on this podcast. There had been a lot of talk that the Warriors were recruiting Durant, but none of us really thought it was going to happen until it happened. The arguments in favor of this move from the perspective of Durant and the Warriors are pretty damn obvious. Golden State was great before. They're going to be greater now. The team's depth and size will take a hit because they had to dump Harrison Barnes, Andrew Bogut, and Festus Azili to fit Durant under the salary cap. But the Warriors' best lineup of Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Durant, Andre Iguodala, and Draymond Green, it's going to be the best lineup in NBA history. Three of the best Mm. shooters of all time, plus two of the most versatile players in the game. And as I wrote on Sunday, the worst player in that lineup won the finals MVP. The argument against the move is one about convention. It's the same reason why none of us really thought it was going to happen. The Thunder were up 3-1 in the Western Finals last year. Players don't typically leave teams that are as good as Oklahoma City. By leaving OKC, Durant didn't just strengthen Golden State. He ripped apart what had been arguably the Warriors' toughest long-term rival. Mike, your thoughts? Before I get into all the nuances that are so delicious, like thinking about the possibilities of who would just put up their hand and play for the minimum to be the 11th player on this juggernaut, I want to compliment the NBA. I think it wasn't entirely by design. They had a couple of things going for them, like the fact that they put their players' personalities forward and we get to know them. But this argument between baseball, which is clearly lost, and football as our national sport, I mean, I guess the TV metrics say it's football, but my God, does the NBA have a hold on our imaginations like no other sport. I mean, the draft was kind of okay. I mean, especially compared to that we're all supposed to get hyped about the football draft. Some linemen went first. The draft was pretty good. But then this signing period is fascinating. It's dramatic. It adheres to all the standards of the climaxes and denouements and ups and downs. It's 
It's extraordinary, and it just ca- it's so captivating of our attention. What a great sport, I say. And <laughs> it's also really useful to have the cranky guys saying, you got to do it for your team, Oklahoma City, where I've never been or never want to visit and which was stolen from Seattle. At first, you get mad at those guys, but they're necessary in this drama. And I made this point before, but what it really is like, especially the offseason, but even the finals, it's WWE, which is all concocted, but naturally – the NBA has become WWE. There's heels, there's baby faces, there's storylines, there's backstories, there's what you say versus what you do. There's essentially some, some uh, version of kayfabe, which is, you know, projecting a certain persona. It's amazing. I love it. You know, what's amazing, Mike, is that, you know, we're talking about how this has a hold on the imagination this year because of what happened with Durant. And I thought we'd sort of reach the apex last year with DeAndre Jordan and, you know, everybody coming to visit him in his house and not letting him, in, letting him out and Mark Cuban not being able to get in and emoji gate. I thought you couldn't get any more dramatic than that. But the NBA has actually topped itself this year. Yeah, well, you know what it is? That was like a that was like a reality show on cable that had a little bit of uh, interest to it, but it never really popped. And this is like the Marvel superhero version of that, where millions and millions of people are flocking to the theaters to see it. It is the it is the headline story, and it's amazing. I think you just hit upon something. I think there should be a reality show where you sort of have cameras at the top, what, 10 free agents on the market, and they just record everything. And then you package it up at the end. I mean, wouldn't you have wanted to be in that mansion in the Hamptons with Kevin Durant as he took meeting after meeting after meeting and then just get to see that as sort of a reality show slash documentary? I would be happy to be at any mansion in the Hamptons. (laughs) Yeah, without Durant is a little better. (laughs) So you you guys are both totally right. Um, This was just so surprising and it's not just that he is switching teams it's the fact that he's going to a team that was already the greatest in the nba and leaving a team that really could could have should have would have beaten that team and durant didn't owe oklahoma city anything he was with that franchise one year in seattle eight years in oklahoma city the fact that you know, that's nine years. It's well over half of an NBA player's prime. And so the idea that he owes the team that drafted him that he didn't choose to go to anything more than he'd already given them is kind of preposterous and absurd. But, you know, to the extent that LeBron James was criticized for going to Miami to join up with two other superstars, you know, those guys, at least as a unit, had not won a championship. Dwayne Wade had won on. It's just so defiant of convention. It's hard to think of a precedent. And I'm not mad at him. I think it's great. I think it'll be incredibly fun to watch. But it's just so different and so, you know, unexpected because we just have these people that you identified, Mike, the Stephen A. Smiths, just tell us and tell these players kind of relentlessly that this is not what you're supposed to do. You know, that's why this was so shocking. Yeah, but aren't we in sort of unconventional times in the NBA? I mean, just look at the salaries, this go around with free agency. I think it, this is this is not the old NBA. And, and I, I think, you know, you're right to say that he, Kevin Durant didn't owe Oklahoma anything. And I, I'd like to get away from that thought where these players owe the team that drafted them. You know, they had nine years to put together a team that could win a championship 
with Kevin Durant as part of the mix, and they didn't. And it's and you know, well, they kind of did, but they they didn't. They didn't didn't win one. They didn't win one. Let's be honest. They they did a good job, right? Some GMs can be criticized for not getting the job done, like uh, you know. The Cavs the first time around. Presti did what he could, but then the uh, Warriors rose in the West. What are you and they had do? a lot of injuries. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Presti did get the job done, and I am a, a huge fan of, of Sam Presti and what he's done um, in Oklahoma. But he, he, Kevin Durant had every right to go to, to Golden State, and I'm honestly tired. I don't know how you feel about this, but I just thought that Stephen A. Smith calling it a weak decision was – unbelievable in my opinion I just I could not what right does Stephen A have to say that about a player really making a decision that he feels is best for his career I mean sometimes these guys just need to a cultural shift a change of scene a change of teammates and I think that again Kevin Durant every right to do this well, I look at Stephen A. Smith as a defense lawyer with a bad client. You know, it's his job to say ridiculous things. <laughs> well, but he also that- stayed at the Philadelphia Inquirer his whole career. He would never leave <laughs> yeah. to, to go to a, a bigger, <laughs> a bigger place. And think of, what, think of what Kevin Durant, the idea of what he owes. He went to college because he was made to go to college, okay? That was thrust upon him. He went to Seattle because he was drafted by Seattle and he had no choice. Then he was made to move because that's what the team with his rights, and unlike every other worker who has the means to do so, says, thanks, guys, I'm staying back. He's not allowed to do it. And he stays with his team because that's the team that, he, that has his rights for years. And then he stays with them because of overall restrictions in the labor pact. And in fact, he's getting paid more than most people I know, and yet so far underpaid and has been underpaid in his career because of restrictions. I mean, the guy's no victim, but he's borne the brunt and has been, in fact, victimized more than his own agency would have allowed. Yeah. And can we also talk about the way that I just think he did this the right way? I mean, you know, you mentioned LeBron to Miami. I mean, this, to me, the way he left, I understand he called Sam Presti shortly before the announcement came out. I mean, just everything was done in a, in a very considerate way. It speaks to, I think, I hate to be cliche about this, but speaks to the character of Kevin Durant. I, I like the way he handled it. I think everything he did was smart for him, but also considerate of the others that are involved. I think that it was very considerate. You know, Kevin Durant brought his own power drill to remove his plaque at the Oklahoma Sports Hall of Fame. I thought that was very kind of him. (laughs) Um, The NBA really made this happen. I don't think it was necessarily intentional, but you alluded to it, Mike, the maximum salary. Kevin Durant is going to get paid the same amount as Chandler Parsons. And all of this money that's being thrown around, you know, this week with the salary cap increasing to $94 million because of the new TV deal, they're like players who are mid-tier, who are not even starters. Guys like Timofey Mozgov is getting $16 million a year. John Lohr is getting you know more yeah. than $10 million a year. John Lohr, he averaged 18 minutes a game. <laughs> so that the way that the NBA, CBA, you know, this is what the players and the owners uh, agree to, the money gets redistributed from LeBron James, Kevin Durant, and the guys who are the genuine stars who win, you know, championships for their teams and drive ticket sales. The money that should be going to them is going to, you know, some combination of Chandler Parsons and Timothy Mozgov. Carl Anthony Towns' money is also going to those guys too, because the Rick rookie scale is just absurd. Yeah. And, and Steph so, Curry's money. And so I was thinking about this and like, oh, the NBA economic system is so irrational. But baseball system is is maybe even worse. 
because, you know, pitchers don't get the opportunity to get paid until after their like eighth Tommy John surgery and football, the contracts aren't even guaranteed. So I don't even know if we can criticize the NBA for having this dumb economic system because the other sports are even dumber. But I mean, I, I would still argue there should be no maximum salary. You know, keep a salary cap if you want. It's still the same amount percentage of basketball income is going to go to the players. But, um, you know, if the NBA didn't want to have super teams, if we didn't want to have them, then getting rid of the maximum salary would be a way to do that. Well, now that they have a super team, what my mind goes to is the obvious. you obviously say one of two or three things. Like, there's only one basketball, and, you know, chemistry is a big part of it. But I just see this transition uh, into incorporating Durant as can't lose. Swap out Harrison Barnes in the death lineup, putting Kevin Durant in the death lineup. They got a little better. Didn't they get a little better? Seems to me they got a little better. And when you talk about there's only one ball, um, that was true of teams where they were thrown together when the players didn't have agency, when the players, or literally free agency, when the players didn't necessarily choose to put themselves together. And when you have situations like, you know, Steph, uh, Stephen Marbury not being able to share with Kevin Garnett, this wasn't the choice of those players. So I think that that is going to be fine. P- plus, pace of play is increased. So there is only one ball, but there are more possessions. And while I don't think they're going to beat the regular season mark because that's not their goal, they be- they own the regular season mark. What would beating a team that didn't win the championships mark do for them? This just seems so unstoppable. And I know the Warriors have some of their – the sheen is off of them as the lovable, beautiful – games to watch, but they're going to be beautiful, aren't they? And they also give themselves the uh, availability. Kerr is in this weird position. He could just have, say, every game, none of my starters are going to play the second quarter, and that's how I'll save tread on them. Or he could just, like, rotate one starter that we're going to be without, maybe simulating what happens with an injury. There are so many possibilities of how he could do this and still get the number one seed by 15 games. The mind boggles. It's interesting. You mentioned you're not going to go for the record mark. Obviously, you, you, you do that and you come up without a championship. It's a very hollow, in some ways, uh, regular season. Um, and I just think that what we're going to see here is exactly what you said, where, where Steve Kerr is going to conserve some of his star players. And um, it gives them so much luxury to do stuff and to, and to, to do sort of, I, I, be, I, I don't know, do you think they're going to go sort of the San Antonio conservation route? Granted, that all of these guys are, I think, 28 and under, so they don't have quite the tread on them um, that San Antonio does. But do you think that's what we're going to see, sort of nights where they just completely rest the starters and it's their, their, fo- their sole focus is winning a championship? I think they're definitely going to do that. And I think that it's a shame in some way. It's totally rational and it's what they should do. But I feel like it's kind of been lost a little bit with – people just starting to hate the Warriors just because of the partly because of the grind punching, partly because of the arrogance, partly because of Joe Lacob just seeming like a douche, partly just because of familiarity breeding contempt. But what's what's lost and forgotten about last year is just what a fan friendly move it was to go for that record, just mm-hmm. in defiance, uh, again, of convention around just championship or bust, you know, rings and nothing else matters. The fact that they seem to care this much and as fans, the season is so long. And especially if you're like a season ticket holder, um, it's just 
I don't want to say a slap in the face, but it's not the most like cool thing in the world to do for, you know, teams like not to play the best players. I mean, it's totally rational, but the fact that the Warriors seemed to care as much about the regular season as fans did and that they really wanted this record was just such an amazing kind of once in a lifetime thing. And we're definitely going to lose that now. We're going to gain like maybe the most fun team to watch ever if everything falls into place. But I just want to, you know, give a shout out to the 2016 Warriors. They uh, <laughs> they were good. I liked them. 2015 I liked, I liked what they, I liked what 2015 they stood for. was their year, actually. I like what they stood for, you know? <laughs> Do you think the pressure is going to get to these guys? I mean, you see so many times when they put together dream teams. I'm thinking of Miami with, when LeBron first came. I'm thinking of the Celtics when KG first came. Um, you know, they, they, they had rocky starts. Um, and, and then when same with, with LeBron when he went back to Cleveland. There were rocky starts. I mean, is this going to be, you know, and I, I went to a, a Warriors game down um, in Brooklyn when they were playing the Nets, and you know, it was maybe 50, 75 maybe media members and people were there just for the Warriors and it seemed like everybody was wearing a Steph Curry jersey. And I just wonder if the if the pressure gets to them or are they just going to be simply so dominant that, you know, it's only a little hiccup in the road. Well, now that the Nets have signed Jeremy Lin, most media members <laughs> will be there for him. He has quite a blogging following. I think that you could say that the pressure could get to them, except I fully assume that they'll be up by 17 entering every fourth quarter. <laughs> and also, let's say they're not. Let's say that they have a couple close games and they don't nail the final shot. Perhaps we expect Steph to look at Durant saying, who's going to take this? I want to take this. No, I want to take this. But I think they'll have such a cushion with the lead in the standings and they'll have such a cushion built in knowing how good they are. And they seem to be the sort of team that gets along, maybe just because they're so good and we haven't seen those fissures. But And the other thing I'd say is that all the other teams where they didn't gel immediately, it wasn't one guy coming into an established uh, way of doing things, an established true, system. And true. Durant is entering the best uh, machine in the NBA, and it doesn't seem like he wants to change the machine too much. Something always happens. Something's going to happen where it's not going to be easy for them. And I think saying that they're going to be leading by 17 going into every fourth quarter. They're going to be leading by 17 and make 98% of going into every mm-hmm. fourth quarter. No, but something's going to happen. It's going to make it hard for them. And we talked about that with Ethan Strauss before. Like even the, in the season when they did win the title and we look back and being like, oh, that was inevitable. All the Cavs players were hurt. Well, at a certain point in that final series, it definitely didn't look inevitable when they were you know, down two to one and they had to make a you know dramatic change in their lineup and approach to – win that series. It didn't look inevitable that they were going to beat the Thunder, even though everybody thought that, you know, that was a cinch. And, you know, obviously they, they lost in the finals. So even even if we think, you know, they're diminishing returns. We saw this, you know, with Kevin Love going to the Cavs. He definitely didn't put up his, you know, numbers that he did with the, with the Wolves. Um, you know, when you add a fourth superstar to a team, it's going to make less of a difference in terms of the quality of the team and the record of the team than if you add, you know, superstar number two or number three. So I think they might not be as improved as we think they're going to be. It it would be hard for them not to be better with Durant, but I don't think adding him is going to mean like they'll sweep every game in in the playoffs. That's good to know. That's, that's, that's reassuring (laughs) for some, I'm sure in the Western conference. Apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. 
you earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Before this year, the Welsh national soccer team had played in one major international tournament, the 1958 World Cup. A hypothetical Welsh fan who's followed his team for the last several decades would have known nothing but disappointment as star players like Mark Hughes and Ryan Giggs failed to lead their country to anything approaching international glory. But last year, Wales qualified for the European Championships, an effort that included beating Belgium 1-0 at a game in Cardiff behind a goal from Gareth Bale. At the European Championships this year, Wales advanced from the group stage and beat Northern Ireland in the round of 16. The Dragons then faced Belgium again in the quarters and won 3-1, setting up an improbable semifinal with Portugal and Bale's Real Madrid teammate Cristiano Ronaldo on Wednesday. Joining us now to talk about all this is a non-hypothetical Welsh soccer diehard. Bryn Law is a reporter and broadcaster with Sky Sports and the author of Zombie Nation Awakes, Welsh Football's Odyssey to Euro 2016. Bryn is with us from Robin Hood Airport, I believe. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> no problem. It is indeed Robin Hood Airport. Yes, we do call airports names like that in the UK. <laughs> but, in, you, but in this airport, they take from the coach class and give to the first class. Uh, that's a very good, very, it's a nice suggestion, but I don't think it actually works in, 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 in practice. It's not quite that egalitarian now. <laughs> so you're on your way to France for the semis, and my sense... Brand um, of the Welsh soccer fan is that you and your kind show undying support, or maybe undead support, um, <laughs> given given the zombie title um, yeah. for your team. But you kind of always thought of it as a lost cause. Is that a fair absolutely. characterization? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've got I've got friends. The night Wales qualified in Bosnia, uh, I was lucky enough to be working on the game as, as Sky Sports touchline pitch side reporter on that game. And um, I was looking at friends who I knew, loads of friends I knew in the away supporters, the visiting supporters section. We were in Zenitsa in the middle of nowhere in Bosnia. And um, the rain was teeming down. They were standing on an open terrace. And I looked up there. And as the rain came down and the final whistle went in the game that saw us qualify, which was a game abroad in, in Israel, then I saw the tears running down the faces of the fans there. It was a fantastic sight to see because so many guys and ladies in that, in that uh, visitor section literally never thought they would live to see this day. And I say live, you know, uh, markedly, actually didn't think it would ever, ever happen in their lifetime. So for all of us, the phrase living the dream just feels so, uh, so apt. Bryn, I'm, I can totally relate to that being a... a fan of Boston teams and living in Boston. So I, I understand the uh, thinking it will never happen. 
just curious, you've been to all of the games so far in Euro 2016 for Wales. Most memorable uh, oh. moment for you? Is there something that happened inside a stadium, oh, outside a stadium? Or are there too many to count? This has been from the position of having followed the Welsh side from when I was a, a young boy, actually born in England, but uh, with a Welsh mother, Welsh-speaking mother as well. And, I, and I, all my holidays were spent in Welsh-speaking northwest Wales. And I subsequently, uh, as a young lad, moved across the border from England to Wales. Been following the team ever since then. And never, always wanted to go and see the side play in it in a summer tournament. Never had the opportunity to do it. And finally, so that I've got to say, at the moment, the whole experience has just been absolutely incredible. Incredible. And every time we, we go to a game and we come out of it and say, well, it can never get any better than that. We said that after the Slovakia game that we won 2-1. And it got better. We lost to England, didn't matter. We came into the next game, the Russia game, and it was fantastic. We won 3-0. We came into the next game, the Northern Ireland game. We scruffed it. It was a bad game, but we won 1-0. And then, obviously, Belgium, at the moment, currently sits top of the pile. But the whole experience, not just the football, but meeting fans from all over, the, uh, all over Europe, getting on with fans from all over Europe, the whole football festival, the whole experience of that has been... So far, just absolutely incredible, magnificent. So Wales is a uh, country of three million. Iceland's a country of three hundred thousand. So you're much bigger comparatively than Iceland, <laughs> than say, than say Portugal, a country of ten million, is to you. Um, uh, should we read much into the Icelandic charge during this tournament happening in the same time as Wales did to? Uh, in, infer anything about the overall quality of play? Yes. I, I, I don't think, I, I would hope people don't see it as a, as a, as a negative in terms of the, the, the overall um, perception of the way that the, the tournament's been played. I would say it's a positive because I would say, I know this in having been very close to the Welsh team um, because I worked with them a lot over, over the years as well as being a, a fan, you know, I've got that professional role as well. Having been very close to them, and I'm sure it's, I know it's the same with the Icelandic team. The key there is that word team. The team ethos, team spirit is absolutely fundamental to the success. This Welsh team, I love every single one of them. Every member of the squad, I love them all. And any Welsh fan, and there are a number in this airport with me now, any Welsh fan you ask would say the same thing because they have created such a bond between themselves. Remember, there's been tragedy that they lost a manager, Gary Speed, a fantastic guy, a good friend of mine, who took his own life, just as things seem to be really picking up for the national side. They've had to cope with that. They've come through that awful adversity. And despite everything, they've pulled themselves together under a good manager. And it's the team ethic that's got them through a number of challenges. So it doesn't matter how many superstars you have, but if you have a team that plays together, that's the key to success. And I think that's a great lesson. I hope it is anyway. So I'm a cynic about these sorts of things, and I'm sure that there are lots of teams that are together and, and love each other that don't do as well. And so just from a very cold-blooded X's and O's standpoint, what do you think is the secret to the Welsh team's uh, success so far in this tournament? One of the players, there's a very eloquent bunch, the Welsh football players, and when I sit and interview them, it's often an absolute treat. And I don't say that. Um, I've been doing this job 23 years, the, the sort of sports reporting bit, and, and, and it's very rare that you come out of interviews and say, wow, that was good. But um, <laughs> some of the Welsh guys are really good to speak to. And one of the players, Chris Gunter, said to me, you don't build team spirit by taking everybody go-karting. And that phrase sticks in my mind. He said there's a lot more to it than that. 
And this group, this Welsh group, has been together as a group of players for about 10 years at least now. They've played in all the, the, the age levels below the national side and they've come through together. So some of them are playing at the level below the Premier League, but their togetherness and their cohesion and their sense of self is, is just it's bigger and better than anything I've ever encountered before. They just like each other an awful lot. He also said that when you sit in the, in the dressing room before the game and you look at the guy next to you, you want to do your very best for him. Uh, and that's a key factor, I think. They, they, it's genuine. It's not contrived. You may have seen the hashtag together stronger. It genuinely, it's not a marketing ploy. It, it's true. That, that's the feeling. I'm wondering, though, when you say that it sort of can't be manufactured, I, I look at uh, the success of teams like Iceland and Wales in, in Euro 2016, and I think about uh, the U.S. team, and I'm wondering, is there any way to replicate what Wales has done? Is there anything the U.S. side or other countries who would like to have success in major tournaments can learn from how Wales has put this together, how Wales has nurtured its team chemistry and togetherness um, over the I, years I, I, to get to this point? I think it's a case. I think there's a case study uh, in terms of the way Wales have done it. I mean, there are certain aspects that, you know, there are challenges that they face along the way. And I mentioned that the, the um, tragic death of a young manager previously, there are elements of that that you would never want to, could never replicate. And the way that the players came through that incredibly difficult time for everybody involved with Welsh football was, was, um, was something to see. So there are challenges that they face that others have never faced before. But I still think you can do it. I think you can put together a group. I mean, you've got a guy called Gareth Bale. He's now one of the most famous footballers in the world. He's the most expensive player in the world. But when you watch the games, he plays for the team. No question he plays for the team. And the contrast will be drawn ahead of this game with Cristiano Ronaldo, who you always have a feeling doesn't really play for the team. Cristiano plays for Cristiano, whereas Gareth quite clearly plays for the team and, and for me it's by, uh, exemplified by the fact that count the number of times he's cleared corners away for Wales during the course of this tournament it's half a dozen at least where Gareth Bale is the man who heads the ball away from a corner kick he's that you know he's there doing his job he's not hanging around on the halfway line waiting for the glory I think it can be replicated but it needs an awful lot of work and it takes time and patience yeah, that thing you said about we play for the player next to us in the locker room. When that player next to you is Ronaldo, it gets kind of hard. Although, he did seem to be quite happy when he hit that penalty kick against Poland. But you also said something about the cohesion of the team, and I never thought of that. But maybe in some way the small nation does have a bit of an advantage in that there's not a large player pool. There's not a temptation to you know, Absolutely. constantly tinker and shoot yourself in the foot. Like, there are only a very limited number of players who really deserve to play on this stage. Then you have to stick with the ones you got. And there is some good to that. But here's my question. I'm no soccer expert, but it does seem to me that the quality of the great teams, Germany, Spain, they're in between golden generations, let's say. In Spain and Germany, there's just not yeah. that dominant team right now, and that means they're ripe for the plucking. Listen, don't take the luster away for us. <laughs> they're golden teams as far as we're concerned because they've been in these tournaments many, many times before and they've won these tournaments many, many times before. We in Wales are enjoying a golden generation. There's no, there's no question. It's funny because I've used that phrase, you know, when we try and hype the games up, when we're showing them live on Sky Sports, we've so often said, hey, here we go again. It's a new dawn for Welsh football. There's a golden generation about to come together. And we've used it tournament after tournament after tournament. And, it, and it's definitely lost its shine in terms of a, uh, a pitch. But over the last, 
the, the, all, I did all the qualifying games um, before they got to the Euros, and suddenly it did all come true. And yes, this is a golden generation. So we're enjoying that fact. I think you're probably right. I think there's a, I mean, uh, Belgium are a great case in point. We've played them a number of times now in the last three and a half, four years, and we've only lost one game against them. And yet, we, they're ranked and have been consistently ranked inside the top five in the world. They were ranked at two when we beat them the other day. So they have a problem playing against Wales because they are a team of great individuals and terrific players, but they can't create a team. They don't have that team ethic, that team ethos, and you don't know what Belgium is going to turn up when you play against them. So we, we have benefited from that, but I think it's, it's all the more enjoyable for the fact that we've done it with a team of players, some of whom play at below top level. So, Bren, this is an opportunity for Wales and the Welsh team and the Welsh people to really have a moment on the world stage that is incredibly rare for a country yeah. this small. And so I want to give you the platform to just tell the world, what is the deal with Wales no, like, <laughs> like, what I, is the deal with Wales? No, I feel like well, Iceland as well. It's like people just have very weird ideas about like people believing in fairies. And then in Wales, there's like the <laughs> dragon on the flat. There are just all these weird kind of like notions and preconceptions about what life is like in the country and what the people believe. And just just feels like an opportunity to correct the record. We worship dragons and some do live in caves. <laughs> uh, lots of miners. Lots of choirs. No, it's none of those things. But what Wales is, Wales is an ancient land. You know, Wales is older than England, if you like. And Wales isn't the county of England. Wales is a country. And, and for, for many hundreds, thousands of years, Wales existed as a country. It has its own language, which is, I think, the oldest language in Europe, which is, it's not, it's not a derivation of English. It is a, a completely different language. Uh, I speak it. Many others speak it still. You know, nearly, I don't know, 600,000 people of the 3 million in the country speak Welsh. My mother speaks Welsh as her first language. So that does make us different. There is no question we are different. And the outlook is different. And the mindset is different. So although we're attached to England, it's not the same country. Um, but this opportunity that's been afforded the country as well as, as well as the football side is immense because you're asking me questions like that. And that's a key factor. People are now saying, where is Wales? What is Wales? And that should give the country, because it isn't a country currently, it has its own assembly government separate to the English Parliament, but it's still uh, ultimately answerable to the English Parliament. But going forward, I think that will give the country confidence to say, well, where do we actually stand? Can we stand on our own two feet here? I mean, I'm talking from a political perspective here because that is my uh, political bias, if you like, the Welsh nationalism. Uh, the, the idea of Wales being a completely separate country, like Scotland may soon be. Um, but it has given the country, or should have given the country, the confidence to say, here we are, we exist. Look at our flag. It's a fantastic flag. We have this amazing anthem that people have been moved by as we've sung it repeatedly through the, um, through the tournament games. We sing in our own language. We talk in our own language. It's different. I want to get back a little bit to the game ahead. Can you please tell me what the real story is between... Gareth Bale and his Real Madrid teammate Cristiano Ronaldo. I mean, are they friends? Are they enemies? Are they frenemies? I have a hard time believing that the two are really close, uh, as one former manager of Madrid claimed. Not sure I'd really believe that any teammate of Ronaldo was really close to him. But what's the story? Do they like each well, other? I'll be absolutely honest. I've dealt with Gareth for a long time now from when he came into the national side before he was a big star. And he's a lovely, lovely guy. I've got to meet his mum and dad. 
Frank and Debbie, who are fantastic people, very, very ordinary, very, very down to earth. And Gareth is a, is a person I like immensely. Cristiano Ronaldo I've had less dealings with professionally, but he's not a person. I, I think it's a, I suspect uh, it's a lot harder to warm to Cristiano than it is to warm to Gareth. I don't think they're bosom buddies, but I'm only it's a supposition rather than based on anything that I actually know. I don't think they're bosom buddies, but I think Gareth is cute enough. Gareth is um, very shrewd in terms of how he positions himself in, in the modern football game. He knows that it's not good to have a, a big rivalry with a teammate, so he would never create that situation whereby it appeared that that was the case. I think Cristiano worries that Gareth is the next Cristiano, basically. So it'll be really interesting to see in the, in the game the uh, dynamic between those two. But I know Gareth's been at absolute pains to say it's not about the two individuals, it's about the two teams. And that's absolutely right, because for us, can you imagine this? A country of three million people, we are the smallest country that has ever got into the um, semi-finals of a, of a major soccer tournament. And we are one game away, 90 minutes away from playing in the final. Even as I say it to you now, I catch my breath. I can't believe it. It's un- incredible. Do you let yourself at all think about what the celebration would be like if oh, you guys won it no. all? No, we, we have a default setting in Wales, which is one of being inherently pessimistic. And uh, I have a very good friend who follows Wales absolutely everywhere. Uh, um, and he came up with a phrase many years ago when we did our first live Sky coverage. Just a, a very quick anecdote. We did have a, a Vox Pop with Wales supporters, and I was doing it. I knew the guy at the end of the line. I went down the line and said to all the guys, how do you think Wales are going to do um, you know, in this game and then going forward? They all said, oh, it's going to be great. We're going to do really well. And Wales were on a high at the time. They'd done well in the previous qualifiers without quite succeeding. I got to the end of the line. I said to my pal, Tommy, Tommy, how do you think Wales will do? And he just answered, deadpan, we'll never qualify. Mm-hmm. And that was all he said. And that has become a catchphrase, we'll never qualify. So we, we go from that basic pessimistic setting. So what we're in, enjoying now is way beyond any of our... Any of our um, experiences previously so i don't get carried i don't get overly carried away uh, i've let myself do that before and it's gone wrong so on this occasion we're just okay we're enjoying every game if we got to the final i can't even begin to think about it i mean it's on sunday and which is what four days five days away it's madness it's utter madness the front page of Le keep summed it up the day after we beat belgium uh, when it said kel folly what madness and that just sums it up so given the great success of this Welsh team, these wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight, and given the horrible nature of England, I would assume that many of the players on the Welsh national team have the opportunity to play for England and vice versa. I mean, you know, someone of mixed parentage is not too uncommon there. Are we going to see that? Are we going to see players who could very well play for England opting instead to play for Wales in the future? No. I don't, I don't think so, to be honest, because uh, the players who play for Wales who could have played for England, by and large, wouldn't get picked for England. So Hal Robson-Carnu, who's English-born, who scored the second goal. Sam Vokes, who scored the third goal against Belgium, both English-born. Ashley Williams, who scored the first goal, who played non-league football till he was in his early 20s. They would never, ever have been picked up by England. And it goes back to a point that somebody raised earlier, um, that might be my flight being called there, but... That goes back to a point that somebody raised earlier about, you know, are there, uh, the players playing for Wales have been in the group for a long time. They get in the group because there aren't many players to pick from. In this instance, I don't think there'll be much, 
change in the terms of recruitment. I don't think England players will come and play for Wales. You still need a parent or a grandparent to be able to qualify for it. Well, Bryn, uh, we don't want I, you to miss your flight. But <laughs> um, before you leave, can you wish the team best of luck in Welsh for us? Pob luck i team Gymru and Leon a summer. Come on, Gymru. Bran Law is a reporter and broadcaster with Sky Sports, and he's the author of Zombie Nation Awakes, Welsh Football's Odyssey to Euro 2016. Have a great flight and a great semifinal. In 38 years as the coach of the University of Tennessee women's basketball team, Pat Summit won 1,098 games, the most in Division I history for a man or a woman. Her teams also made 31 consecutive NCAA tournaments and won eight national titles. But Pat Summit was much, much more important than even her prodigious record would suggest. She was a pioneer in women's sports. She became the head coach of Tennessee in 1974 when she was 22 years old, just after the passage of Title IX, but eight years before the NCAA officially sanctioned women's basketball as a sport. More recently, she went public with her diagnosis of early-onset Alzheimer's, helping to raise awareness and money for the cause through the Pat Summit Foundation. When she died last week at age 64, the acclaim from her friends and players and sports writers and really everyone who ran across her, even just watched her from afar, has been loud and fulsome. And I predict we're going to keep that going. Our guest is Sally Jenkins, who's a columnist for The Washington Post and wrote three books with Pat Summit, who is also her close friend. Sally, thanks so much for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. And as I said in the intro, you know, everything that was said about her, it's really what you would want people to say about you, um, you know, after you're gone. It's just such a testament to what a person she was. Well, you know, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, I've been telling everybody, here you are, you win eight national championships, you win 1,098 games, which is more than any, you know, human being basketball coach alive. And what they say about you and write about you in your obits and your eulogies is all about what a good person you are. Um, I mean, that was remarkable. Um, I think that, you know, it's a little, it reminded me a little bit of um, when Robin Williams died. And we, you know, we knew Robin Williams was funny. We knew he was a comic genius and great at what he did. Um, and people got a sense that he was a good human being. But when he died, all these stories came out about just how truly wonderful he was, you know, how... Uh, polite he was to the smallest person he came across. And, you know, that's what happened with Pat. I think that the Pat that we all knew as close friends of hers, the reason we were all so devoted to her as friends was because we saw someone who was very, very different from the presence on the court and who really earned a lot of loyalty. And when, when she died, I think other people just got to see and get a real sense of that Pat Summit. So... You've written that uh, Pat's favorite word to describe herself was subversive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you think she liked that word? <laughs> why, why did that was that such a fit for her? Uh, because the discussion was all about why she wasn't a, 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 a feminist. You know, she said, I'm not a sign carrier and I'm not a, you know, I don't march around, you know, protesting. Um, but, but what she did was she subverted resources for men's athletics and she subverted um, the attention and the audience for men's athletics and, and used those to build careers and character for women. 
she, she borrowed from the strength of men's athletics, and she took that strength and started giving it to women. And she was one of the first people in this country ever to do that, along with Billie Jean King or Donna DiVarona. I mean, you know, the women's movement really ignored female athletes. I don't think Pat felt particularly part of the women's movement, even though she went to college in the 60s and 70s and, and grew up with it. Uh, the women's movement led by, you know, Gloria Steinem, you know, I mean, that was a powerful movement, but it didn't really speak to real physical strength in women, the, the kind of feminism that Pat was practicing day in and day out. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of feminism that, frankly, is lived out by farm women, the kind of women Pat grew up around, like her mother, who could drive any motorized vehicle on a farm and, and work in the field alongside men and was just as strong uh, as anybody on the farm. You know, um, so I think the women's movement didn't especially speak specifically to her, and so she invented her own brand of it. And that's why the the whole conversation was so interesting to me and why the word subversion really spoke to her. That reminds me of Sandra Day O'Connor. Yeah, very much so. Sure. I mean, a, a, lot of, a lot of people. I mean, Billie Jean King had a hilarious conversation with Gloria Steinem that Billie Jean told me this story once. Uh, she said, you know, Gloria, you should use us more. You should use female athletes. And Gloria Steinem said to Billie Jean, you know, this is about politics, Billie. This is, this is not about sports. This is about politics. And Billie brought her fist down on the table and said, Gloria, we are politics. Mm-hmm. And Pat, I think, agreed with that. They were birds of a feather, Billie Jean and, and Pat. Yeah, I love, one of the anecdotes I love um, that I've heard about Pat Summit uh, in the days after her death was that she was asked to coach, uh, approach to coach the Tennessee men's team, and her response was, why is that considered a step up? Yeah. And that's such a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful message to send. Pat was quick, you know, I mean, funny. She was funny. She had a very wry sense of humor, uh, you know, not enormously sophisticated. I mean, she... You know, she went to UT Martin and was a phys ed major, did get her master's degree. But, you know, Pat was very insightful, very quick with a sentence and could really, I mean, as a writer, it was wonderful to work with her because she could boil things down into these sort of thunderbolt sentences like that. Uh, I mean, when she became the first million dollar coach in women's basketball, she said it's back pay. Mm hmm. Hmm. Yeah. You know, the so the the adjective I would most associate with her before reading uh, really your remembrances in the obituaries was toughness. But my question is, she had that, but she had so many other qualities. Mm-hmm. And is the fact that we always had to first hear of her toughness, does that speak to something of the general sexism that she always had to dealt with. Like, first you have to know that we could check off the toughness qualities, and then we'll go on into these other wonderful qualities of human beings. But before we even start to consider a female coach, just know this, she's tough as nails. Well, I mean, look, I mean, she was tough as nails. I mean, there's no, there's no getting around that. On the court, I mean, she had a situational personality on the court uh, that was appropriate for what she was trying to do for a living, uh, and and so I don't, you know, I, I'm not sure that that was sexist so much as, you know, she really was very tough, uh, certainly, especially early in her career. Uh, she got softer as she got more experience in the profession and understood that, you know, um, she she became a more balanced coach, I think. Uh, but, and, and, and people will tell you that she changed profoundly after her son was born, Um so, but, but Pat was always, there was always a great deal of gentleness off the court. I mean, I think the reason her players accepted it, you know, everybody talks about whether Pat could coach today. 
uh, given that kids, you know, um, don't accept that kind of coaching the way they used to maybe. Um, but I think Pat would have been able to do it uh, in any era because with any type of kid because Pat's toughness on the court was balanced by a deep, deep gentleness and kindness and emotional generosity off the court. So, you know, in other words, she could really, you know, obviously we've all seen the tape highlights. I mean, she could really get in a kid's face. I mean, I mean, she could get right up to you and it was like, a, you know, a snapping turtle coming at you. Um, but, you know, then she'd cook a kid dinner and talk to him about, I mean, kids, her kids never questioned that she loved them and cared about them. Um, there was just absolutely total conviction in that with all of them. She made sure they knew it. Um, and that's why, I mean, listen, you know, when, when in Pat's last days, they were driving overnight. They were flying in from all over the country, and all they wanted was five seconds to give her a kiss. I mean, the, the devotion that her players had for her was really something to see in those last four days. Carol Lawson um, talked about that, obviously, and was very emotional. Um, she's now an ESPN broadcaster. Tamika Ketchings, who's in the WNBA. Michelle Marciniak, who was the subject of the classic Gary Smith profile from Sports Illustrated from 1998. All of them, as you said, Sally, kind of talk about how tough she was, to use that, that word, um, and also how much she loved them. But my question is about the toughness and how it made the players better. Do you think it was necessary to, for her to be as brutally tough as she was, especially on her point guards? Um, I do, yeah. I mean, I look, the first time I worked with her, when I went down there, and I think it was the summer of 1997, and I watched her work with kids in the gym in the summer. And, you know, and I watched her really uh, come down on a freshman named Teresa Jeter. And, uh, and I winced watching it. I mean, it was hard to watch. And uh, I felt terrible for the kid. And afterwards, you know, she knew. And she said, um, so what would you think? And I said, well, I'll be honest with you, it was really hard to watch. I was uncomfortable. And, and, you know, and she said, why? And I said, well, I guess because I felt like you were embarrassing her. And Pat said, Sally, would you rather she be embarrassed in a gym alone with me, or would you rather she embarrass herself in front of 35,000 people? And I said, okay, I get it, you know. I mean, she made it very clear to them that, that she was doing this to help them, uh, that she was doing it to actually give them everything they wanted. I mean, you had to buy in. I mean, if the kids really wanted a championship, she was going to get them one, and they knew that. But they had to do the things that she insisted they do. And if you did it her way, you, you won. Uh, and, you know, she, she understood the heartbreak of losing. She understood that losing in championship games, you feel it the rest of your life, you know, um, she understood a lot of things as a competitor and a great, great player in her own right. She had blown her ACL. Uh, she had played on an Olympic team that won the silver medal and just wasn't quite good enough. Um, you know, she had been such a great athlete in her own right that I think she understood her players in ways that the rest of us were just looking, you know, from the outside in at. Sally, it was interesting. You were talking about how she, you know, was subversive, how she borrowed from the strength of men's athletics and gave it to women. And her, it's, it's an ironic or unintended legacy, um, I think, that she raised the profile in women's basketball, raised the pay to such a point that coaching women's basketball, particularly at the college level, has become a very attractive position 
to male coaches. And you look at uh, this year's women's final four and all four teams were coached by men. And I'm wondering, one, did you ever talk with Pat about the number of men coaching women's basketball, taking advantage in some way of the opportunities that she fought for, for women? Um, and, and just personally, what do you make of the trend that you see um, in that regard? Well, first of all, for a long time, Pat uh, felt that the pay in women's basketball was a real injustice to everybody, male and female coaches alike. Uh, and second of all, uh, I can remember vividly uh, her talking to Gino when his contract was up, and she was making more than him at the time, and she, they actually talked, and Pat said, you know, I think I can help you. Um, and she shared some of her numbers with him so that he could get the raise she felt he deserved. I mean, that's how... That's the kind of person we're talking about here, first of all. Um, you know, she wanted to raise the pay level for everybody, male and female coaches alike, in the women's game. So that's number one. Number two, Pat, uh, Pat very specifically always had a male coach on her staff. She thought the diversity was good for women's basketball. She thought that it was good for her players to have uh, a male ear. She thought it was good for her to have a male ear uh, on the staff. So Pat didn't resent sort of the male presence in women's basketball the way you might think. Um, I just know that for a fact. Now, I do think that she would have an issue with athletic directors hiring replicas of themselves um, mm. to coach women's sports. I think the numbers today would have really disappointed her, and I think she would have been very outspoken and she would have been campaigning for more women athletic directors uh, and for more women deputy athletic directors so that the hiring uh, was done by some women uh, as well. So Pat was in favor of diversity. Uh, that's the main thing. She wanted equal pay and she wanted diversity. So, so Sally, two of the most uh, dedicated, relentless, driven, tough sports figures of the last, I don't know, 30 years are Pat Summit and Lance Armstrong. And you are a biographer of each. You are, were a friend to each. You were on the show talking about Lance. But my question's about human nature. Do you have any insight or have you thought about how one's uh, drive, one's relentlessness turned to this powerful, life-affirming force, and another one's drive and relentlessness curdled and destroyed him. How does that happen? Oh, God. I, you know, narcissism? <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, look, I, look I, I, Lance is a friend of mine. I really care for him. He's a, he's a good man um, underneath it all. Uh, his, his fight in the cancer arena was 100% honest and 100% authentic, and that's what I really cared about. Um, you know, so I want to start there. Um, I think he made some bad decisions. Uh, I think he needed to come to me or somebody else and say, there's something I need to tell the world. Uh, I think we needed to hear it from him and not from USADA. And I think if he had done that, I think he'd be having a much different uh, experience um, right now. And by the way, I sincerely believe Lance was the greatest cyclist in the world, and so do the people he cycled against. Um, so um, I want to add that as well. Um, you know, look, Chris Everett told me once, and I never wrote a book with her, but Chris Everett told me mm -hmm. once, a lot of the qualities that make a champion are negative. Um, you have to be selfish to a certain extent. You have to, you know, Chris, I remember Chrissy telling me, you have to say to your friends and your family, 
um, you know, I'm going to do it this way and I'm going to shortchange everybody because the life of an athlete is so short. Um, and I'll make it up to people on the back end. So I think that all champions share that. And what you look for in the, in the ones who are not just great but good people is that kind of self-awareness that Chrissy had about it and that Pat certainly had about it. Um, Lance had it, I thought, for a little while, and I think he lost it, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. And I think he would say that as well. Um, you know, that self-awareness, uh, you have to constantly keep your ego in check. You have to work really hard to not let the self-absorption that you require that is part of the fundamental equipment for a champion, the focus and the, the tunnel vision and the self-absorption, not to let that tip over into narcissism. Uh, it's really hard, and not many of them are real successful at it. I mean, uh, that's why Pat was so special, to be frank with you. She never let success ruin her or spoil her. Well, the amazing thing is that by caring so deeply about this game that really none of the, the sports that we watch or care, like who really cares who wins or loses, but by caring so deeply about it and, you know, by having such an effect on the people around her and getting them to care, she had such a bigger, more profound impact on their lives and in the world. So we should be grateful that she cared so much about the silly game, I guess. Right. And, you know, I mean, it, 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 by the way, the, the answer to why Pat wasn't spoiled by success was because it came so late to her. Um, you know, look, she worked in that business. I mean, Pat didn't really get famous or wealthy coaching or teaching. I mean, she was 45 years old or something, I think, before people really noticed her or cared about her. I mean, you know, when she won her first championship, she was still making $12,000 a year. And, um, you know, women's basketball players and coaches were still being sort of insulted by everybody for being too driven or too competitive. So, you know, she swam upstream for so much of her professional life. She really didn't set out to get rich or famous. She set out to be a teacher, and she set out to coach uh, women in basketball, not so they could win championships, although that was certainly her goal, but more importantly so that they could get a job and be self-supporting. So when the fame did come and the recognition did come and the wealth did come, she was already such a fully formed human being um, and had spent so many years being discounted. Uh, so, so when people did pay attention to her, I think she had a pretty good idea of where that belonged in her life. You know, understanding that we live in different times and that women's sports is in a, in a different place and that obviously there will be no one like Pat Summit. Who do you see carrying on the legacy? I mean, where does it go from here? Because there's so much more to accomplish in women's sports. Well, I mean, I, I certainly think Pat would want to give credit to Gino Oriema. I mean, that, that program, I think she always respected it. Um, she certainly admired the way he coached, and I think he's creating uh, the type of strength on the court that she always uh, wanted to create herself. So I think, I think you have to give him credit, and she'd want to do that. Uh, you know, I, it'll be interesting because, you know, Pat was so charismatic, um, and I don't and maybe it's because I was just such a good friend of hers, but I'm not sure I see anybody. I mean, it's really weird because the biggest star in women's basketball, you know, for the last 25 years was Pat Summit. It wasn't a player. I mean, as great as the Shamiqua Holtzclaws and the Diana Tarazis are, Pat was really the biggest star in the game in a lot of ways. And I'll be interested to see what develops in her absence. I, I really will. Uh, 
it's a big gap. You know, it's a big, her absence is, is huge. Sally Jenkins is a columnist for The Washington Post and wrote three books with Pat Summit. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank Bye-bye. you, Sally. Thanks, Sally. Bye-bye. All right, now it is time for After Balls, and Mike Pesca has me looking at the Welsh National Anthem. One of the translations, uh, here's a verse for you, Mike. For though the fierce foeman has ravaged your realm, the old yes. speech of Wales he cannot o'erwhelm, our passionate poets <laughs> to silence command, nor banish the harp from your strand. And I got another translation that implores me to fire the fancy and quicken the blood. Um, should, we, should we do fierce foemen or quick blood? F- the fierce foemen. All right, Mike, what is your fierce foemen? I have a fierce foeman in two parts because of the rule of three. I only have two examples for one, so I'll supplement it with a little personal anecdote. I just wanted to compliment the Netflix series, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which uh, just concluded. And this is by just concluded, I mean we just finished watching it. And there were some excellent deep cut sports jokes in there. I don't know if it's Tina Fey or people she works with, but she has demonstrated in her career uh, an ear for things that are bizarrely funny about sports. And I'm thinking of the uh, 30 Rock character played by Paul Giamatti, who was an Islanders fan. And and either Tina Fey or whoever wrote those episodes imbued this Islanders fan with some characteristics of Islanders fandom, namely a in hospitable dorkiness. Yes, let's call it that. That just really nailed a lot of people I know. Not Maybe not casual Islanders fan, but the kind of guy who would wear an Islanders jersey to a New York office place. So the two great kind of obscure sports jokes in this season of Kimmy Schmitter, at one point, Carol Kane's character says, or makes a WNBA joke, the best WNBA joke I've ever heard, and it was about throwing games. I know a guy who makes things happen. What kind of things? Well, let's just say the New York Liberty did not beat the Indiana Fever last night on the strength of their crisp layups. Here's the number. I don't know if I can do that. But then in the last episode, they talk about, and I'll say it, the Washington Redskins, because a main character uh, identifies at least as Native American, and they drop some Washington knowledge that actually is true stuff. It's just some people find it offensive. Whoa, 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 Jacqueline, look. Some of my best statues are of Indians. And the Redskins' very first coach was Lone Star Deeds, a man who pretended to be Indian so that he could get out of World War I. Excellent, funny jokes. I don't know what percentage of people would really get them, but I'm in that Venn diagram. So good job, Kimmy Schmidt. Now, that's only a rule of two. I only cited two jokes. So I will say this, speaking of people who wear hockey jerseys. Yesterday, I bought my first hockey jersey. I was in a thrift store, and there was a hockey jersey It was for $10. It was a 2007-2008 Buffalo Sabres discontinued logo, but it was the real official CCM hockey jersey, and they were having a 30% off 4th of July sale. So I now own a $7 hockey jersey, and my insight is this, that there is no body type that does not make you look obese if you wear a hockey jersey, unless you are obese, and then somehow it makes you look slim. There has to be an inflection point where hockey jerseys become flattering on you. And I just imagine a, a an intervention where some people will get together with their friend and say, listen, Tim, you've reached 
hockey jersey flattery. I don't I don't want to get into more details than this, but at this point, how you look, you might want to consider doing something, joining a gym, CrossFit, whatever, because at this point, hockey jerseys are flattering for you. That's that's always a big warning sign. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> Uh, I think we all need to make our own decisions about whether to wear ho- hockey jerseys. We need to look deep in, inside our own hearts and stomachs. Uh, <laughs> I will wear a whaler's jersey any day. There so. you go. Shira, what is your fierce foeman? Well, my fierce foeman is the newest star of U.S. track and field. That would be 800-meter runner Boris Berrien. On July 4th, Berrien finished second in the 800-meter final at the U.S. Olympic Trials and earned a place on the U.S. track team headed to the Summer Games in Rio. But that wasn't his biggest triumph of this track season. Berrien stared down Nike in a contract dispute and won. And I'm sure a lot of U.S. track and field athletes privately cheered very loudly because Nike can be quite a bully. Nike enjoys tremendous power and influence over the U.S. track and field scene, thanks in no small part to a sponsorship contract with USA Track and Field, the sport's governing body. That deal means Nike will spend roughly $200 million a year to sponsor USA Track and Field through 2040, and it sponsors the U.S. Olympic Track and Field team, too. Given that kind of investment in a sport that struggles for attention and money in the U.S., Nike expects athletes to fall in line, not challenge its authority. But Nike picked the wrong athlete to mess with in Boris Berrien, I'm happy to report. Here's what happened. Nike accused Berrien of breaching an endorsement contract by competing in New Balance sneakers, and Nike tried to stop Berrien from running at the trials. In Nike's lawsuit, the company claimed that it matched an endorsement deal from Boston-based rival New Balance and, as a result, still sponsored Berrien. A court order even prevented Berrien from running in non-Nike gear. But when Nike called, a matching offer included reduction clauses. As a result of those clauses, Nike could decrease Berrien's base pay if he failed to meet certain competitive benchmarks. He would have to enter a certain number of races, hit certain times and places in big meets, and maintain a certain world ranking to receive his full base pay. The New Balance contract didn't include reduction clauses. Berrien's agent, Mirhawi Kaflesky, called the Berrien-Nike fight a David versus Goliath battle, and a free Boris campaign started with the goal to defray Berrien's legal costs. It wasn't long before Nike found itself losing in the court of public opinion and losing badly. It helped that Berrien came to the battle with an amazing personal story. In May 2014, he lost his college eligibility because of poor grades and left school. He worked at McDonald's during the day and trained at night. But an elite level running career seemed way out of reach at that point. Still, some in the track community wondered what happened to a runner who'd shown a lot of early promise. And he was invited to join an elite training group in Big Bear, California in December 2014. And soon after, he started running international quality times. That attracted Nike's attention for better than worse. Nike dropped the lawsuit shortly before the trial started, and Berrien signed a multi-year endorsement deal with New Balance. While Nike claimed it would have prevailed in court, it decided 
to, quote, eliminate this distraction for Boris. You might say, how disingenuously generous of Nike. Now, in Rio, competing for Team USA, Barian will be decked out in Nike apparel because it's the team's Olympic sponsor. But he will be wearing New Balance shoes. And it promises to be a little awkward. But Barian's stand against Nike should have far-reaching impact. In the wake of the David versus Goliath battle, I hope there's more openness surrounding contracts given to U.S. track and field athletes, and that it somehow alleviates the pressure that even top athletes face to perform at a high level continuously. Making a living as a pro track athlete can be difficult in the U.S., and Nike shouldn't be in the business of making it harder, especially for runners like Boris Berrien. So we we know that Part of the NBC sob story is going to revolve around working at McDonald's. I, I don't know if the fuck you Nike part is going to make it in there. Oh, no, it absolutely won't because <laughs> there will be swooshes all over the place. You cannot do anything to upset Nike. I mean, that is like the first rule of Olympic coverage. Do not upset the swoosh. That's just, that's just how it is. And quite frankly, how it will be at least in track and field till 2040 and probably beyond because none of the other shoe companies they're just it Nike's the behemoth it's 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 the 800 pound gorilla there's no there's no shoe company that's even remotely positioned to overtake its place in USA track and field or exert even i would say one you know tenth of the influence that Nike has over the sport hey Josh what's your fierce foeman So this has been by far the most challenging few weeks in my professional life. I understood cognitively that I was facing a crossroads in my evolution as a podcaster and as a man, and that it came with exceptionally (laughs) difficult choices. What I didn't truly understand, however, was the range of emotions I would feel during this process. A -hmm. wise man once said, you should trust the process, or maybe he didn't say it and other people attributed it to him. But regardless, he resigned, and then the Sixers got Ben Simmons. So I wasn't sure whether that meant I should trust the process or not. As I said, it's been a challenging few weeks. The primary mandate I had for myself in making this decision was to have it based on the potential for my growth as a podcaster, as that has always steered me in the right direction. I'm at a point in my life where my ad reads need to be crisper, my bonus segments need to be smarter. But it's of equal importance for me to find an opportunity that encourages my evolution as a man. I'm from New Orleans originally, but Washington, D.C. truly raised me. I've been in the city for almost 14 years at Slate for nearly 13 and recording episodes of this podcast since 2009. When I started at Slate in 2003, we were still four months away from The Guardian using the term podcasting in an article. What I'm trying to say is that along with Mike and Stefan, but mostly by myself, after ball after after ball, <laughs> one Squarespace ad at a time, I invented podcasting and got Zelmo Beatty into the Hall of Fame. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I was learning about family as well as what it means to be a man. Again, always what it means to be a man. Podcasting brought me opportunities that I never thought possible, building a new medium, being a part of history. It has helped me build my community, build families, and inspire young women. Sure, it wasn't all fun and games. I popped my share of peas. I read the wrong promo code during a me undie spot. And I didn't prepare well enough for that interview with the guy whose name I never learned. But I honestly believe that all of those experiences helped make me who I am and who I will become. I podcasted through the sweat and hurt, not because Challenge called me, but because you called me. I did everything for you 
because that's what you do when someone makes you feel as alive as you've made me feel. There are no words to express what the Slate and Panoply organizations mean to me and what they will represent in my life and in my heart forever. The memories and friendships and afterballs are something that go far beyond all the awards we have not won. Those invaluable relationships with people like Mike and Stefan and Panoply Chief Content Officer Andy Bowers and Trivia Champion Emeritus Carmen C. are what made this deliberation so challenging. With this in mind, I've decided that I'm going to stay at Slate, but I'm going to switch uh, jobs with Dana Stevens. Trust me, you'll come to love her uh, knowledge of the game and her low center of gravity. That is my final decision, although if Stefan cuts short his vacation and plays spades with me and Paul Pierce and J.J. Redick, then maybe I'll change my mind and sign a four-year, $88 million max deal. Sincerely, Josh Levine, executive editor. Copyright 2016, the Podcasters Tribune. (laughs) (laughs) So at what point did that switch from uh, Durant to LeBron? And was there a little little A-Rod in there? It never switched to uh, LeBron. I read part of uh, Kobe Bryant's uh, Love Love Basketball (laughs) Retirement Poem. And there are also – the part about – me inspiring young women was uh, from a WNBA player's retirement letter. <laughs> I was wondering about that reference. <laughs> uh, you know, I just, just out here inspiring young women. It just came from the heart. I can uh, sense that about you, Josh. <laughs> we'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Please become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Thank you very much to our guest this week, our guest panelist, Shira Springer. Thank you, Shira. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Shira. Our I'm a, I'm, this, is, this, I'm a, this is my first podcast. Wow. Yeah, this is it, the first time I've ever done this. It sounded like it was your eighth podcast. Well, yeah, gee, yeah, thanks, definitely. thanks, Hi. thanks. <laughs> low double digits. <laughs> our intern is Laura Wagner our producer is Mickey Capper the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply hang up and listen as part of the Panoply network check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash Panoply remember Zalmo Beatty and thanks for listening hello it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.